Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Adam, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you, Sam. appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Uh, why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in AI? Absolutely. So I you know, studied computer science as an undergrad at the University of Maryland uh, and took the, um, the, the only two AI courses that were available at the time, um, which is actually still the case at, at many undergraduate curriculums. Um, and when I graduated in the late 90s, I actually went to work. Uh, one of my professors had gone to DARPA to start a new program there. And so I was able to, uh, you know, I immediately went to, to DARPA and was working in AI research there for the first couple of years of my career. So been uh, have been involved in this field for, for quite a while. There were, it's funny to look around now and see all the, you know, how many jobs there are in this industry. At the time, it felt like a very small community and uh, was seen as somewhat quixotic <laughs> at the time. So um, <laughs> This this current uh, uh, you know massive surge in interest has has been um, fascinating to watch, and from there I went into a uh, uh, a series of startups after after working in DARPA for a couple of years, um, some of which involved uh, a little bit of AI, but a lot of more were straight um, you know web application startups. And then about five or six years ago, maybe a few more than that, I started you know with with the kind of confluence of these of these really uh, enabling technologies like GPU and big data and and cloud computing that have, that have kind of led to the to the recent resurgence of of machine learning coming um, coming together you know really started to get back into it in a big way uh, in particular in the cybersecurity domain and which is which is really ripe for for machine learning uh, and so for the last six six or so years I've been really focused on machine learning. Uh, and then um, joined Capital One about two and a half years ago, initially to lead up a big project they had to, to create a new data platform and, and you know, machine learning, a suite of machine learning analytics for cybersecurity. Uh, and that has since kind of uh, my scope here has kind of expanded. And now um, I help with machine learning implementations all across the company. Oh, fantastic. Well, maybe we can we can have you give us a, a lay of the land, an overview of the different ways ML and AI are being used at Capital One. Absolutely. So you know, in finan- the financial world, there's really kind of no end to, to the way um, machine learning can be deployed. There's a, there are a lot of possible uh, use cases, huh? Absolutely. I mean, it's just a fundamentally quantitative field. And so everything from you know, the way we fight fraud, and there's many different flavors of fraud, to financial crimes like money laundering, to, um, you know, to the way we service our customers, uh, you know, making sure that they have the best experience as possible and can get answers to the questions they need as, as quickly as possible, um, whether they're talking to a human or or a bot or on their mobile app or, or, or the web app. Um, we use it all over the place, as well as for, you know, a lot of our internal back office processes, which for any large scale company, um, you know, bringing automation to that can create huge efficiencies. What would you say is an example of one of the, the more innovative projects that you're working on there? I think a lot of the way we're 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 taking on fraud, both transaction fraud as well as uh, account takeover fraud and and you know identity theft are, are have been really innovative. Similarly, this the work we're doing in um, uh, money laundering has really begun to, to to bear some fruits recently. Can you walk us through one of those examples? You know, I'm curious about you know some of the data sources that come into play. Um, you know what your you know the way you approach modeling there. 
um, and you know other areas related to those topics that might help us understand the way you go about uh, applying ML and AI in your environment? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the ones that, that we like to talk about is um, an application we have called Second Look. And Second Look is, is for uh, it's something that helps our customers out very directly. And it's, uh, um, you know, I, I know that I'm sure all the listeners to your to your podcast have um, uh, are very uh, dutiful about checking their their credit card bill, you know, every day and making sure that all the transactions look correctly. Um, but for, for those of us who are perhaps a little bit less uh, diligent about it, um, you know, what we've done is we've actually trained a machine learning system to go and spot transactions that, you know, that, that, that we should highlight to our attention because everyone's busy. And so, you know, you don't always have time to review your bill. And so it's good to know that that someone's kind of checking it for you, if you will. And so that can be things like spotting, say, a suspiciously high tip on a restaurant bill or um, getting double charged for the same service or product um, or, or just having sort of a recurring payment that, that one month all of a sudden uh, significantly higher than usual. Um, th- there's a number of reasons why, you know, things that, that you might want to kind of be notified about um, on your credit card statement. And, you know, obviously there's a real, there's a real kind of a, um, precision that's needed because if you alert on too many things, uh, then, then it just becomes a frustrating user experience. But we also want to make sure that, um, that stuff doesn't slip through the cracks either. And so we've put a quite a lot of work and, and it's, it's really one of the, um, the kind of innovative ways that we're improving our customer experience. Uh, and it's funny, like when I go, when I meet people at, you know, a party or something and tell them I work at Capital One, by far and away, this is the, the thing that, you know, people mention the most consistently is, you know, how much they love this feature and how and, and they always have a story about some, you know, some charge it caught that they wouldn't have caught otherwise that was incorrect. That they've been able to straighten out. So I think that's a great example of the way machine learning is, is um, bringing some transformation into the financial services industry. Oh, that sounds like a feature I'd like to have. I imagine that the the training data for something like this comes from your traditional customer reported issues? Yeah. So we do have, you know, there's a number of ways we, we look at it. Um, you know, we do have sort of a, a, um, a, a customer feedback loop in there where they can kind of tag stuff as being problematic or if alert, you know, not being problematic. I think with those kind of um, those kind of systems that where you have kind of human generated tagging, um, they are, they are one source of ground truth. They're not the, the, you don't want to over rely on that kind of stuff, but it can be very helpful. I think there's also a lot of work um, from our uh, our data scientists looking at uh, things like you know using sort of um, unsupervised learning and anomaly uh, detection kind of approaches to kind of uh, tease out some of the patterns in the data, and and, and that's a, another way that um, through things like uh, you know label propagation we can we can um, uh, begin to you know really hone in on the t- transactions that that we want to alert off of. Oh, interesting. Uh, and you mentioned that you came into uh, Capital One with a focus on cybersecurity. I imagine that that's a big deployment area as well. It is. Yeah, there's a, you know, the, with, with cybersecurity, you just have such massive um, amounts of data. And even with a large team of analysts who staff our um, cybersecurity operations center, uh, they're, they're really constrained to only be able to look at a really small amount of the, the number of events that we have on our, our network and our computers every day. And so, you know, machine learning really gives uh, a great opportunity to, number one, cut through all that noise and, and really kind of surface the events that are um, 
most that 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 we really want to have the analyst focus on that may be suspicious that you know or maybe they're completely benign but we need to have someone to check into and then we kind of get smarter uh, along the process and so that can be anything from a piece of malware on a computer to some sort of uh, attempted data exfiltration there's there's a lot of um a lot of different attack vectors malicious emails whether that's phishing or spear phishing or extortion attempts or you know there's just quite a lot of uh threats that that any large company faces and particularly one that um uh, manages a great deal of money now in a situation like cybersecurity, where you know capital one certainly is far from alone in having to worry about these kinds of concerns do you find that uh, your primary vector for kind of inserting machine learning into solving some of these problems is via off-the-shelf software, meaning your vendors kind of built uh, ML and AI into their products, or are you kind of out in front of it with your own data scientists building kind of custom systems to help you stay uh, ahead of uh, your cyber adversaries? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. Uh, I think for us, we, we do buy a lot of kind of best of breed um, cybersecurity products. And I think it would be, um, uh, you know, it, it's certainly advantageous. It's, it's really important to take advantage of, of kind of the rich product ecosphere that's out there. Um, there are, you know, when, when, when you kind of deploy a lot of these solutions, um, there, there are still opportunities that present themselves that are either, you know, unique to the, to the, to the to Capital One, or or just um, that are created by the way that the the product marketplace landscape um, lines up to uh, to um, kind of even strengthen things beyond that, and that's we, we focus on those opportunities. Are there any examples in that domain you can give us, at least at the high level? I'm um, sure one of, one of the ones that we've we've talked about uh, at a, a couple conferences recently is on detecting malware callouts and and. Um, Specifically, malware callouts that use uh, DGA, do, DGA's domain generating algorithms. Um, we've done some pretty innovative work there that we've um, presented on at conferences, and, and you know, um, will potentially uh, uh, be sharing in the future. But that's a, you know, it's a, it's been a fun challenge where we've applied some of our really um, uh, interesting machine learning approaches using convolutional neural networks and other features um, to to bring kind of a uh, this 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 problem has been around for a while, and it's kind of one that a number of AI researchers have taken on and, and, you know, we have a pretty novel approach, which has been um, working well for us. So what's a, what's a malware call out? So you can imagine if you're, you know, if, if I'm sure it would be you, but if one of your friend's computers got infected because they clicked on the wrong link or, you know, double clicked on the wrong attachment in their email uh, and then had a piece of malware on their computer, it might, you know, once it, once your machine's infected, the next stage is for it to reach out to a server controlled by the attacker and say, Hey, I managed to affect the, infect this computer. What would you like me to do? And that can be anything from lock their computer till we pay till they pay us a a, a ransom in cryptocurrency to mm-hmm. um, look search the computer for um, any files containing with the title financial disclosures or something like that, and <laughs> and you know uh, download those to the to the malicious server. I mean, there's a wide variety of of things you can do once the computer's infected. A lot of times, it's participation in a botnet where you're um, maybe trying to, you know, hack into another a system controlled by another company um, through some sort of brute force method, and so when it makes that call out to the to the server, it, um, uh, you know, we we focus on kind of detecting at that point. Um, uh, it, that's one of the areas that we've explored, and the, those the um, the way that those callouts are made, the way that those servers are effectively the domain names they use um some of the attackers have gotten come up with some really complex algorithms for um basing 
the host names on either some sort of time-based algorithm where you know maybe there's like 20,000 different domain names per a given day and you can say at any given at, at any given time there could be one that you decide to register that your malware will call out to which makes you know the traditional kind of blacklist whitelist approaches to blocking malware callouts very difficult um, and, and so we focused, you know, that's one of the categories of attacks that, that we focused on. And you mentioned that part of the solution here is involves the use of convolutional neural nets. CNNs are typically used in like image recognition types of tasks. How have you applied them to uh, the cybersecurity use case? Yeah, so CNNs are famous certainly for kind of computer vision uh, tasks, but m- more recently there's been quite a lot of work, uh, I think a, a real kind of, um, you know, surge of interest in using them for more NLP-based tasks, and that's that's this 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 kind of category of of um, problem that I'm describing fits into that NLP category. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. So, you know, really, what we're trying to do is distinguish between a, a you know a host name that um, that maybe is let's say phonetically plausible, but not a real word like Google, um, to one that uh, is just a string of jumbled up letters. Um, that's, that's kind of the first, uh, step. And then, you know, some of the more recent attacks actually use, uh, our dictionary based attacks where they'll generate the domain name from real dictionary words, but just put them in odd combinations. So understanding like what's an odd combination and what's not is Facebook an odd combination or does that make sense? And it really kind of gets into uh, a, a decent amount of kind of language understanding to, to really, um, uh, to to create a, a model that can accurately distinguish between those types of uh, domain names. Uh, it sounds a bit like uh, the challenge that Google and others face keeping up with with spammers as spammers learn how to use proper grammar. <laughs> very very much very much so. And it's, you know, it's continually a whether it's spamming or cybersecurity, it's a constant cat and mouse game, right? So uh, it's it keeps it fun. It never gets boring. And so one of the challenges that the industry has been you know, faced with is uh, is the talent shortage. Um, how have you managed at, at the bank to address that? Yeah, it's a good question. There is there is a massive talent shortage going on right now, and you know there's no there's no silver bullets to that answer to that question. But um, there's a number of ways we're addressing it. So obviously we we are hiring you know going aggressively after recruiting people who have. Um, good amounts of experience in that field. There are not a lot of those people, but but we're certainly uh, you know very uh, you know work very hard to make sure that we can attract as many as possible. We also have a program at Capital One called the TDP, the Technology Development Professional, where we go out to primarily the top twenty computer science departments in the nation and uh, and recruit heavily from that. And once they're here, they work all over in a bunch of different technology areas. But the ones that come to the Center for Machine Learning, um, we actually have a pretty rigorous um, process around, you know, training them and getting them up to speed on machine learning. And so we're, we're kind of famous for being the group that uh, gives homework. <laughs> and um, we do things like we have uh, weekly paper sessions where we'll, we'll review kind of academic papers and, and, t- and sort of discuss their merits. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that really distinguishes the machine learning from uh, other kind of software engineering, computer science disciplines is it, it still has a very academic bent to it. Um, so even though there's like massive applicability across a wide range of business problems, um, there's still kind of a culture of, you know, making sure that you're keeping up with the latest in academic literature and the academic literature is, is, is produced, you know, by 
you know, probably just as much by commercial teams as it is by academic teams. And so uh, it really creates a unique culture. So that's, you know, making sure that you have, you're continuing to do ongoing training and that you're, you're able to take people into the, into the group and, and train additional machine learning talent that way is uh, immensely important to being able to meet the, the talent needs that we have. It sounds like you're going after the same students that uh, Google and a Facebook might go after. Do you find that you're challenged to convince them to uh, to join a bank as opposed to you know one of these more sexy kind of internet born social media type of plays? Yeah, it's a good question. We do, we definitely do compete head to head with with a lot of the tech companies um, for for talent, and you know, and, and that is a challenge. It's fortunately. Um, getting easier as more and more people become aware of, of, you know, really what a tech company Capital One has become. Um, but, you know, the, the, the way I look at it is uh, at, at Capital One, you know, I think that we've seen disruption happen uh, via machine learning across a wide range of, of industries, right? Whether we're talking logistics with self-driving cars or healthcare or commerce. And I, and I really think that um, financial services is, is, you know, you're beginning to see that you're seeing the beginnings of, of a similar kind of disruption. And so I think there are a lot of people who are really excited about uh, you know, not just taking on marketing and advertising, but actually being able to to apply their machine learning skill to something really impactful, like how do people manage their money and, and how can we empower people more for their to take better control of their financial lives and really kind of set them up for lifelong financial success. Uh, you mentioned Capital One kind of becoming a, a more and more like a tech company. And I think we kind of throw around in the, in the industry that, you know, all companies are going to need to look more and more like software companies over time, sooner rather than later, in fact. Uh, but Capital One actually has a pretty long history at this. I remember um, Capital One was featured in in a book that I read many years ago, Competing on Analytics by... Uh, Thomas Davenport, I think is the name of the author, uh, but really talked about how the company was before machine learning became cool like it is now, um, really applying predictive analytics and other things to uh, to the way it you know made decisions, to the way the company made decisions. So my question is, in the company, do you find that having that history is kind of predispose the your business counterparts to kind of understand and be ready and willing to work with uh, machine learning and and predictive and statistical kinds of approaches and and algorithms or do you still find yourself you know with many of the cultural challenges that some of your counterparts in in companies that don't have that history might have yeah, it's a it's a great question, and and uh, and I think that's really good context about Capital One. Um, it's something that I didn't fully appreciate when I first started talking to them about joining, but but have really come to appreciate now, um, which is that the the DNA of the company is very much in that um, data analytics space, and that's how they, you know, that was their whole initial kind of founding hypothesis. And um, Capital One is still founder led, and so Rich Fairbank, who's the CEO who started the company with that conviction, still runs the company with that conviction, and it really trickles down. I think where um, you know machine learning is obviously a pretty uh, pretty different shift from kind of the some of the traditional uh, stats and quants that have been done um, in a lot of companies for for many years. And it requires sort of a slightly different way of thinking about problems. And so I think that, yes, there's a long um, – it's, it's squarely in the company's DNA to think about um, uh, 
uh, you know, to, to think in a data-driven way and data-driven insights are, are worth their weight in gold. Um, I think we have had to evolve like a lot of people um, along, you know, more machine learning lines. And that's something that we're, that we're embracing, but the DNA of the company is, is definitely there. Um, and it's been amazing to watch how much the company has, has embraced that. Are there specific aspects that you can point to or examples you can give as to the way that that uh, cultural shift is manifesting at Capital One? What are the the things that you're finding uh, your business counterparts kind of needing to, to hear the most? And how are you articulating, helping them come to terms with those things? Yeah, I think there are, you know, there are a number of changes and I think, you know, everyone's very, um, I think everyone's really excited and enthusiastic about it. And so there's been, you know, what I've seen, people have really taken it upon themselves to kind of go out and educate themselves on, um, what machine learning can, can accomplish and, you know, kind of separating the hype from the reality. I think, uh, one example is the, the, of, of kind of the evolution that's needed is, um, you know, traditionally, I think in a lot of large companies, uh, data science and and software and systems engineering were sort of distinct activities, and a lot of the the really disruptive um, machine learning uh, uh, systems that you're seeing being built at uh, you know in any industry are really kind of uh, being produced when you have that software engineering, data engineering, and and um, the the kind of data science all working together as one um, whole. Um, so if you talk about like a reinforcement learning system or, you know, any, any sort of interactive system, machine learning system, you know, it's, it's, it's critical that, uh, it's, it's not just a standalone model, but, but as part of a system. And so I think that's been, um, a big, uh, you know, it's, it's been kind of an evolution for us to, to really make sure we're building teams and, and setting up projects in that way, um, to take advantage. But that fundamental belief that, that data-driven insights or, or, or data analytics can really, um, power, great gains is, 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 has always been in the company's DNA. One of the big themes that came out in uh, an event that I recently held, uh, AI Summit, was that, you know, often companies, particularly large companies, get caught up in comparing traditional software engineering with uh, data science and uh, data science-driven efforts. And, uh, the particular area that was mentioned was just this notion of the, you know, the keyword in data science being science and it. it's a much more exploratory type of, uh, type of process and doesn't lend itself to, you know, agile, for example, uh, in the way that traditional software development does. Is that, uh, is that your experience there as well? And how, how have you been kind of working to, you know, what are your methodologies there and how have you been working to kind of fuse software engineering and, and, uh, data science and the other, you, know, you mentioned data engineering as well into a process that kind of works well for capital one. Yeah, it's a good question. There's a couple, couple big themes, um, wrapped up in that. The, the first one is you're talking about the science and data science. And a lot of times it has been essentially humans kind of experimenting with the data, uh, looking for, for insights, right? Like trying to find, you know, in search of an insight and then finding that insight and then turning it into some sort of model that, that gets, um, uh, that can be, that can be put into production and make predictions. Um, the, uh, the, with machine learning systems, what we're really trying to do is create a system that sort of, uh, continually generates these insights in an automated way. And that's, you know, a pretty, pretty big shift from sort of 
a human looking for insights for themselves to building a system that can kind of uh, continually look for insights and, and, and generate them. And so it does require a slightly different skill set and a slightly different way of, of thinking. Um, and then in terms of the methodology, you know, agile uh, is great for software development. I think a lot of modeling is much less deterministic. Like if you're trying to achieve a certain degree of accuracy on a model or efficacy on a model, um, it's really tough to, to predict and plan out, you know, how quickly you'll get there and, and what you, you know, you may have theories, but um, it's just not that deterministic about when you're going to achieve the kind of results that you need to make a model really valuable. And so, you, you know, the process, I think that that people end up adopting is a little bit different than the traditional kind of agile methodology because uh, you just you have to take a really exploratory um, approach to it because you're not sure, you know, what each step whenever you take a step forward, it's going to you're going to learn sort of on the fly what the next avenues of exploration are going to be. And you need to be prepared to react with that. Right, right. Uh, yeah, one of the the interesting slides that came out of this session was that, you know, whereas you can kind of think of traditional engineering and, and agile as being more linear, right? We have these burn down charts and we're kind of creating linear value over time with uh, machine learning is more of an S curve because of that exploration up front. And this is, uh, you know, kind of in mapping out ROI, that ROI takes longer to kind of get to and requires some critical mass. But then when you do, you're uh, able to to you know get a, a significant ROI in your efforts relative to again traditional development. Do you see that kind of relationship between ROI and and machine learning as well? I, I definitely agree that there's a lot of times a longer upfront period of exploration. Um, we've seen on certain projects some pretty dramatic ROI on these projects, like um, just because. Uh, if you're if you're coming into a system or, or, or a, a, a business area that hasn't you know essentially right now with machine learning because it hasn't been applied broadly, there's a lot of kind of greenfield opportunities and kind of low know, hanging fruit. It, yeah, a lot of low hanging fruit, um, but but you know stuff that can be really impactful and and so you know some of the some of the RF the ROI on 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 some of these initial like on on projects can be can be pretty dramatic. Um, I think that the you know the hard part is just scaling up the talent so that you you can um, you can you can uh, implement systems in all the the opportunity areas that that you have. And so, given a, a constrained base of talent, how do you approach portfolio management across the business? Um, do you uh, you know I've talked to some folks that kind of take you know all their talent and apply it to you know their most pressing problems, kind of like a moonshot approach, you know, with the idea that you know if they solve or make a dent in that, they'll have a, a huge impact. You know, other folks, you know, go for kind of quick wins to help establish, you know, a machine learning way of thinking within the organization. How do you balance that? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that, that's right on the mark for us. We started this Center for Machine Learning about a year and a half ago. And I think well, initially when we were getting started and we were sort of building some organizational muscle, um, we took on a fairly broad kind of organic set of projects that really allowed us to um, help the business partners understand what machine learning could do. It helped us to develop a little muscle around delivery. And, um, and, and that's how we got started. But, you know, once we've been doing that for a while, we sort of uh, said, all right, we need to take a step back and, and actually sort of take a top down assessment of the, of the, um, uh, of, of the enterprise and understand like, where are the really high leverage opportunities for machine learning? And so that was, it's obviously um, a conversation that we had 
um, with the, our business partners who have a lot more context around, you know, their business areas. And we really work together to help understand and prioritize what those areas are. And we've devoted, you know, probably the lion's share of our resources against those really transformative opportunities. Um, that said, we still do hold back a, a team, uh, our internal consulting team, that's available for sort of like the, the broader ones that may not be um, the moonshots, but that uh, but that are really important. Um, so we want to make sure we're servicing both and we're ha- we have the right balance there between going after these really transformative opportunities, but also not ignoring like the, the hundreds of efficiency gains that collectively can be uh, really add up to something pretty powerful. How are you organized around data science? It sounds like you've got a center, so there's some central centralization there. But what's the relationship between uh, that center for machine learning and the various business units? Um, yeah, so you know, it is we have a center of excellence, but it's the machine learning expertise is you know across the company and, and the data science community is is there's you know data science is spread all across the company. So I don't I certainly don't want to give the impression that it's all. Um, centralized because that's that's not the case. Fair enough. Um, I think having having the, the center of excellence has allowed us to have a, a small core that like you know really work closely together to to sort of um, uh, help define uh, best practices and, and really uh, you know it's it's nice when you have a, a tight cluster of people because the amount of knowledge share and shared learnings um, is is tremendous and it really kind of accelerates the the growth uh, professionally of of that group. Um, but but we are you know. We have people who rotate out from that center and, and go into the lines of business and, and help kind of see teams that way. And so there's a number of ways that we kind of manage that balance. And um, and so machine learning is really like our all the, the business teams have embedded data science groups in them as well that are that are really doing great things with machine learning. And um, so the center of excellence is kind of one of the one of the mechanisms we have towards building out machine learning systems at Capital One. So for an enterprise, you know, in uh, financial services or elsewhere um, that, you know, recognizes the importance of machine learning, you know, and is somewhere on the the spectrum, but doesn't yet have a center of excellence of some sort. Is that something that you recommend? And, And if so, what what do you think what groundwork has to be in place before uh, one can do that? Um, I, I do think it, uh, it uh, is something I recommend. I think that it one of the reasons why we've been able to attract a very high level, uh, uh, you know, degree of talent and a very very competitive um, talent segment is that working in the center of excellence is is very um, it's a very compelling opportunity for a machine learning professional. And and so you know from that perspective, I think it's been uh, enormously helpful. Um, so I think that the you know as to what the groundwork you need to lay is. Essentially, if you need to have a strong core of people, an initial core, and, and because that's what's going to attract, you know, the, the additional talent, and and so that's for us a big part of the reason why we initially created the center was to 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 create that really kind of attractive place for for talented machine learning professionals to come work at. When you look out across your industry, what unique challenges do you see to applying machine learning within the financial services context? I think the the big challenges are just you know it's a heavily regulated environment right and so um, it's one of the reasons we are focusing or, or investing heavily in areas like uh, um, explainability and fairness um, because you know w- w- there's obviously many many uh, 
years of, of regulation and, and, and um, working with the regulators to understand best practices for managing models and, and making sure that you're managing the risk and, and that's generated from those models appropriately. And so I think that's a, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really kind of unique to financial services um, practices around that and, and understanding how to navigate that. You know, it's tough, I think. One of the reasons why I think we've seen less disruption from startups in the financial services industry is because of those type of challenges. And it really takes, you know, a, a, a larger bank that has the, the, um, all the teams and the personnel and the, and the experience of having dealt with, uh, you know, those type of regulatory processes for many years to, to, uh, to be able to push more aggressively into um, deploying machine learning in, in some of these uh, heavily regulated areas. Uh, so on the one hand, financial services has had to deal with a lot of these issues before, but at the same time, machine learning is is changing things. What are some of the things that are changing in the way a bank would have to think about or deal with the issues that you've mentioned, you know, ethics, fairness, transparency, those kinds of things? Yeah, so I think that the, 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 we could we could talk for hours just about this subject uh, alone, <laughs> but I think... Um, with with a lot of these models, there's they're effectively you're, they're more complex than than the models that have been traditionally used, and with that complexity becomes comes additional power, but there also makes it uh, a little bit harder to to uh, really kind of fully understand everything that the model is doing, and so having to invest in kind of automated ways of bringing that level of transparency uh, it has been a big focus for us, and so you know I think that that's. Um, that's a pretty big shift. And then working with the regulators to make sure that these new ways of kind of understanding the models are um, sufficient and, and kind of meet the, you know, meet, meet the, the spirit of the regulation. And it's not just working with the regulators. We're also working with kind of academic partners and others to, to really um, understand collectively as a group, like what the best way is to bring that same level of understanding that, that we've had from traditional quantitative models to, to machine learning. And that's, you know, it's very much a, a work in the progress in progress, but it's also a process that we're, um, we're very committed to and, and, and putting quite a lot of uh, effort into. You mentioned in there automation, can you talk about some of the ways that you've approached automation around explainability? Um, sure. Well, some, I think a lot of it is there, there's a number of um, papers uh, that have been written and, and we've done our own internal work around um you know, if you have this extremely complex model, how do you get it to kind of explain its actions when it makes a prediction and why it made the prediction? Mm-hmm. And so having some sort of automatic system that can, you know, it's not something you, you these obviously these models are so complex, you're not going to manually trace through it and, and understand the, the decision logic. Right. Um, but this, uh, uh, you know, but there are there are sort of a, a growing set of techniques for for dealing with this in an in a automated way that you know, the systems will actually generate explanations for you um, that do a pretty good job of, of talking about the major um, uh, reasons why a particular prediction was made. So are these techniques like uh, you, like the Lime paper or like fitting more transparent, more explainable models to more opaque models? Or did you have some other uh, things in mind? Those are certainly two big areas. Yeah, the Lime paper was, is, is a very seminal one and uh, it's probably the best known in this field. And I think that um, there's, a, there's just a tremendous amount of interest in this topic. And so there's, there's a lot more work, uh, newer work that's coming out as well on this topic. And, and so I think it's, a, um, it's an exciting area to, to be in. And, um, uh, you know, I've been at a couple major ML conferences recently, and this has been a huge topic for, for people at them. And uh, um, so, I, so I'm really excited by what I see in terms of 
the progress that's being made in in getting to a point where we do have that you know a, a good degree of explainability from these really complex models. What's kind of the the lay of the land in terms of um, the the spectrum of model complexity that you're using there? Like, is it? Um, I guess I'm pausing because I, yeah, I'm guessing that I know the answer that, you know, it's like an 80%, you know, relatively simple things. And then you've got some more complex stuff, but like how, I guess maybe the question is more, you mentioned using CNNs, like how much are you using CNNs? How much are you using deep learning? Uh, and, and you mentioned reinforcement learning, like, do you have reinforcement learning based apps in production? I'd like to get a sense for the range of complexity of the things you're doing. Yeah. So you know, a lot of the stuff we're doing is so for, for starters, you know, anytime you have a system where you're bringing machine learning to it for the first time, a lot of times you can get a big benefit just comes from kind of the basic data engineering and, <laughs> yeah, sure. and, 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 you know, and kind of getting the system straightened out and, uh, uh, and even applying a relatively simple, uh, non deep learning type model to it can, can, you know, it gives you massive gains. Right. And there, um, there's, I, you know, that's another reason for the pause, right? There's nothing wrong with like, taking the simplest approach and spreading it far and wide, right? You can get a lot of benefit in doing that. Yes. And, and, you know, those simpler models are, are really good about like telling you feature importance and things like that. And so that's really good when you're in your initial stages to uh, make sure there's not like some weird quirk in the data that's causing um, some, some results in, in the lab that will never be uh, reproducible in, in production data. And there's a number of reasons to start simple. Um, but all that said, like we know, that you know, uh, deep learning like CNNs is is really um, like there's there's a there's certainly there's a reason there's a lot of excitement around that type of stuff, and 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 then techniques like reinforcement learning you know where you, where you really kind of give the, the systems a little more autonomy to explore the the space are, are just fascinating um, when you can kind of when when you have a problem that's appropriate for it and so we we are doing a lot of research or a lot of uh, work on you know deep learning based models CNNs for computer vision and NLP type applications and, you know, LSTMs for a lot of, uh, like time series based, uh, type uh, prediction and things like that. And so there's, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of excitement about what those techniques can do. I think that, as I mentioned, the center is relatively new. So a lot of those uses are, um, not yet in production, but, but certainly, uh, you know, driving in that direction and, um, uh, you know, excited to see what that yields over the next couple of years. I'm curious, are there any applications of, uh, how far have you gotten with reinforcement learning? Have you identified some potential applications within, uh, Capital One? Yeah. So, you know, I'm not going to go too much into specifics, but we, there are a couple that, that, that we're eyeing. Um, you know, it's not right for every, every situation. And one of the things about the financial world is for many of the problems, the, uh, you know, you may not know whether a prediction was successful for, three or four years, right? And so doing reinforcement learning with a, when your feedback cycle is that long is uh, uh, creates its own set of challenges. And, and so, you know, it's something that we're, um, that, that we definitely focus on because we do think it's a really powerful technique, but, you know, you need to, you need to f- make sure you have the right problem to focus it on and, and, and are doing it in the right way. I imagine that uh, the bank has, come across that kind of issue, these attribution problems in, in lots of different areas, trying to attribute, you know, the success of marketing campaigns and other things. Do you, to what degree do you, uh, have you identified or you, you, do you think 
that, you know, a path forward is in bringing some of the techniques that you've learned in that traditional space and applying it to RL, or is that more the domain of research and you'll wait till it gets figured out? Uh, you know, what, what's interesting is, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Capital One has a lot of uh, uh, history uh, in analytics space and in particular testing, you know, which we're talking about here. Um, I, the, the more I've kind of learned and as we've, we've kind of gone into, you know, talked to explored more business areas for applying machine learning. Um, it, it's really interesting to see, I think in, in the early days that that was something capital one's like always been very good at is, is really, you know, having kind of, uh, control groups and test groups and, and really being disciplined about that. And so, um, I think there's a lot of practices that we're able to, to kind of leverage that were existing in capital one for, for that type of testing. Hmm. Okay, so maybe shifting gears a little bit, your group is sponsoring an event at Capital One coming up soon, the Data Intelligence Conference. Can you talk a little bit about the objectives for that conference? Yeah, absolutely. So we're we're really excited about that. Um, We held the first one. Last year was the first one we did. Uh, It's called the Data Intelligence Conference. It's held in McLean, Virginia in June. And I think our our website is data-intelligence.ai. Um, and what this is, is it's really kind of intended to be a, a hybrid between an academic conference and a practitioner focused conference, um, really kind of blending the best of both worlds. And there, there, uh, we really saw a need, um, in, in that space with that focus. Um, we had a great lineup of speakers last time. We're going to have the, the lineup of speakers this time is shaping up to be even, even better. Um, we have separate tracks on, uh, a couple key tracks on, um, uh, one on fairness and explainability AI, another one on uh, data and ML visualization that, that I think are going to be quite good. And um, and, and so uh, it's just an opportunity to really kind of convene a group to get together and lots of great conversations happen. It's a very kind of collegial feeling converse, um, uh, conference. It's held being in the D.C. area. There really isn't a major machine learning conference in the, the mid-Atlantic. And so um, it's really kind of filled a, a nice gap and, and attracted a pretty big crowd for us. We sold out last year and we've increased the, the, um, the capacity uh, significantly this year, but, but I'm still expecting it to, to sell out well in advance. Any particular session you're really looking forward to this year? Um, I think we're still kind of finalizing the list, so I don't want to, uh, I don't want to be a favorite <laughs> <laughs> quite yet at the risk of alienating anyone, but uh, there'll be some good ones. Who's the target audience for it? So I think it's really, you know, it's really focused on practitioners, although we do have a lot of, um, you know, students, grad students, and po- we have poster sessions and things like that. So there's a, um, there is an academic bent to it, but, but really it's for, for uh, machine learning practitioners. And financial services in particular or more broadly? More broadly. Um, yeah, I would say it's, I, I wouldn't say it's um, primarily focused on financial services. There, there obviously is some content that, that are using examples from financial services industry, but um, it's a, it's a, it's a full spectrum machine learning conference. Awesome. Awesome. Well, from what I've seen, it looks like a, a great event. Any kind of parting thoughts or additional perspective that you'd like to share with our audience before we close out? No, just, you know, I think that we're, uh, we're at a very interesting time. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, having been in machine learning, uh, for the better part of, if not continuously, but it's starting 20 years ago. Um, it, it's just amazing to see. And I think that, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of important questions like we were talking about around fairness and explainability and, and ethics and AI that uh, um, are, are critical to think about along with the uh, all the exciting technology, technological aspects. And, and so I think um, the next few years should be very interesting for, for us. And we're excited to be a part of it. Fantastic. Well, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Great. Thank you. 
All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Adam or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 147. Thanks once again to Adam and Capital One for their sponsorship of this episode. And thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.